Amen, indeed. All right, so with all of that reverberating in your ears and hopefully in your minds and hearts, I want to begin with a question, and the question is simply, what do you think that Jesus is getting at with all of that teaching? Like if you were put on the spot and you just had to pick one thing, what would you pick? Lots of options. I mean, you know, you might have been sitting here thinking, man, I mean, that part about gouging out your right eye and cutting off your right hand kind of grabbed me, which would be a little bit of a pun, right? Grabbed me. Some of you will get that on the way home. It won't be funny then either, so just know that. But really, I mean, that's pretty significant, isn't it? You hear that and it's like, whoa, you know, you sit up straight in your seat and you think, good grief, maybe Jesus is making the point that sin is actually like a really serious thing. Like maybe he's drawing a contrast between the way that he sees it and the way that we see it. And there is a bit of a contrast. I mean, I think we've got to be honest and say, you know, we cut ourselves a lot of slack when it comes to our sins, when it comes to our habits, when it comes to our practices, and, you know, we're pretty hard on other people who have other issues, quick to judge them. Not so much for us. Jesus is up on the mountain going, hey, um, I mean, if you don't mind, I'd like to, being God and all, speak into this for a second and just let you know that If you want to know how seriously I take it, even the tiniest little things, even the things that are like small in your mind, I suffered massively in body and infinitely in soul, even for them. I mean, if you want to know how serious that I, Jesus, take these sins that you excuse, these habits that you indulge, these practices that, you know, you worship and love maybe even more than me, like if you want to know, then look at my scars, and as an aside, look at yours, because they were all caused by somebody's sin. Or maybe you're divorced, and that one jumped out at you. I mean, that would be the one that would jump out, wouldn't it? I mean, that leaves a scar for sure, and you're kind of going, whoa, you know, like you have never heard that, or maybe you just heard it again for the first time in a long time, and you weren't real clear on it the last time, and it's like, wait a minute. You know, because by that, you're thinking, okay, A, Jesus is making quite the statement on the sanctity of marriage, which he is, but then B, you're kind of going, maybe I'm an adulterer, like, and maybe the person that I was married to is an adulterer. Like, what in the world is Jesus getting at with this statement on divorce? And it's a pretty significant statement, and so it's important that you realize that he's addressing something peculiar to his day. So rewind the tape 2,000 years ago. It was very different than it is today in regard to marriage and divorce. And so, for example, only the husband could sue for divorce. Wives couldn't do it. Not fair, but nevertheless the case. And it put them in a very vulnerable situation. And so there was this school of thought back in Jesus' day, all of these rabbis who wrote about it and all of that stuff, and their school of thought, the conservative school that sought to protect these women, said, look, divorce is permissible, but only in the case of indecency, that is to say, of adultery. And again, only on behalf of the wife, she couldn't turn around and sue him if he did the adulterous act, but, but it afforded them some protection. But then you had this whole other school of thought that very much left women vulnerable, frankly, because they said you could divorce for pretty much any reason. And when you read the rabbinical writings, one of the examples that's actually given literally was a husband can sue his wife for divorce if, in his opinion, she has spoiled his dinner. Can you imagine that? Like, If your wife, in your opinion, spoils your dinner and you even say something, you're just an idiot, right? Like, I mean, how dumb do you have to be to mention that? It's like, well, guess who's going to be making dinner forever? 
It's a lot of charcoal, man. What is Jesus doing here? He's affirming the first position. He's denouncing the second position. What he's not trying to do is to collect up everything that there is to be said in the Bible on the topic of marriage and divorce and to say it all here in this particular location. Maybe you're a judge. Maybe you're a lawyer. Maybe you're a court reporter. Maybe you're just somebody who gives testimony every once in a while in some kind of a legal proceeding. And so you hear this bit about the oaths, and you're like, well, wait a minute, because, you know, like, I put my hand on the Bible, and I've put my hand in the air, and I've sworn to tell the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Am I not supposed to do that? No, here, too, he's addressing something that's unique to his day. There was this elaborate system of oath-taking in the days of Jesus that really undermined someone's truthfulness and credibility. It gave people the ability to get out of oaths by making it look like they took a serious oath, but there were all these loopholes. And so I might swear to, you know, do something for you, and I swear by the hair, you know, on my chinny-chin-chin or whatever, okay, as opposed to the hair on my head. And I know that maybe you don't know the loophole, which is that if I swear by the hair on my chin, maybe I'll do it, you know, but I'm not obligated, But if I swear by the hair on my head, which thankfully I still have, okay, now I have to do it. And Jesus is just cutting through all of the deception and he's saying, no, 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 not for you. You shouldn't need oaths. Just be honest. Maybe you're really ticked at somebody right now and you've called them worse than fool. And you're worried because you're going, now I'm a murderer. Is that, is that what this means? Maybe you've lusted after someone in your heart. Can I just say this? We've all lusted after someone in our hearts. So now we're all on the train. Does that mean we're all adulterers? What is he after with all of this? What does Jesus want? Because I think when you look at it, consider it all in its totality, you realize that what Jesus is after is your heart. That's what he wants. Go up on the mountain, bring it with you, and give it to him. And let him change it. You know what the evidence of the change looks like? It looks like suddenly you going, hey, you know what? Sin is actually a big deal, and I hate my sin. Like, that's a strong word, right? Like, I hate my sin. And let me explain why I hate my sin. Not because of my scars, though that doesn't help. I hate my sin because of what it costs, the one that I love more than anyone and anything else in the entirety of the universe. He paid for this. It cost him. How can I love it anymore when I love him? How can I indulge it when I know that's what it cost? Get the idea? He wants us to have hearts that say, well, of course marriage is sacred. And oh, incidentally, in light of the gospel, the question in marriage is never, how are you taking care of me? What are you now doing for me? How best can you serve me? It's not it. How can I take? How can I consume? The question is, how can I in love, after the fashion of Jesus, lay myself down for you? How can I serve you? How can I be more attentive to your needs? How can I give myself away to you? He wants every person who follows him to understand from a transformed heart that everything out here, okay, that we do and say and all that, yeah, you know where it begins? In here. Every dishonest word that I've ever uttered, every dishonest act or thing that I've ever done, everything I've ever made, every, every representation that's dishonest, you know where it began, don't you? Right here. 
What about murder? Murder out here starts in here. What about adultery? Adultery out here starts in here. And even if you don't perform the murderous or adulterous or even dishonest act, that doesn't mean that it's not living and active right in here. Guys, what Jesus wants, what he's after with this sermon is he wants your heart. He wants you to bring it to him. He wants to take it and then forgive you for all the stuff out here and in here. And then he wants to change your life from the inside out. That is to say, from your heart out. By making his loves your loves and his passions your passions and his desires your desires. And for that matter, his truth your truth. And I say that because what is Jesus doing all the way through this sermon? What's the repeating refrain? You have heard it said. 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 And then every time he says that, he then gives them a law that these people knew and thought they understood, and then he disabuses their misunderstandings. That is to say, he's correcting what they believe. So I sat down with a group of people this week, and I said, all right, so here's the deal. We have laws too. We've ha- we have, you've heard it said. Send them to me. Give me a list. So I'm going to give you a few of them. You've heard it said that God helps those who help themselves. Some people actually think that is in the Bible. It is not. It's really contrary to everything the Bible has to say. God helps those who help themselves. Well, let's let's slow down on that a little bit. Let's think about that for a second because what does the gospel say? The gospel says that we're broken out here because we're broken in here and that the thing that I can't do for me and you can't do for you and I can't do for you and you can't do for me is what? Give ourselves a new heart. And yet what is the promise of the gospel? It's bring me your heart. And it looks like that artwork that we showed. That's about the best we can do. And let me make it new. It's liberating. You've heard it said that beauty is only skin deep. Man, that's depressing. I mean, isn't it? I mean, look, you know, you can lose some weight and you can get in shape and you can get a spray tan or whatever. It's probably healthier than being in the sun. And, you know, like there are certain things you can do and you can wear nice clothes and you can get made up and you can make yourself look good. And then people will go, wow, you look amazing and you look better than you did, you know, like a year ago or two years ago or five weeks ago or yesterday. All right, great. But you're still getting older. And that's not going to end well. Like if my beauty and yours is only skin deep, that's a despairing, awful thought. The gospel comes to us and says, no, 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 that's not beauty. The most beautiful people in the world are the people who have the most beautiful hearts. Let me say that a little bit differently. The most beautiful people in the world are the people whose hearts are fashioned after and conformed to the one who has the most beautiful heart, not just in the world, but in the whole of the universe, and that is Jesus. It's interesting to me that, you know, as Isaiah, who writes prophetically of Jesus, like he sees him 750 years in advance is the idea, describes his physical appearance. And he doesn't say, you know, he'll be six foot and 185, medium build. That's not it. He says there is no beauty in him physically to recommend him to you. Like if you saw him in a lineup, you wouldn't go, oh, that's the good-looking guy. You know, like he's the one. No, he's unremarkable, does not stand out, and yet is himself the very definition of beauty. It's the most beautiful person in the whole of the universe. You've heard it said, look out for number one and don't step in number two. I want you to think about that one for a minute. (laughs) 
What does that make you? I mean, if you really abide by that law, you are a selfish consumer. And you selfishly consume all of the people, people around you and all of the stuff around you. You marshal everything and everyone around you and your existence and your reason for living and all of this other stuff. And everybody here is here to serve you and blah, blah, blah. And you know how that story ends? Long before you end, it ends with you being alone and dissatisfied. Jesus says, step into the life that I'm inviting you into instead. Step into it and bring me your heart. (laughs) Step into it and give me your heart and let me supernaturally, because that's what it takes. It takes a supernatural act of the living God by His Spirit to begin to replace your selfishness with His selflessness. And to the praise of His glory, because it's His work, that is like the most enriching thing in your life. And you don't die someday all by yourself with all kinds of regrets and nobody really likes you and it's kind of awkward to be around you and, you know, what? No, no, no. Surrounded by people whom you have served, who delight in you, who love you for the sake of Christ. Okay, you've heard it said that if it's not on Instagram, it didn't happen. And I kind of want to apologize for this one up front. I, I feel like, you know, you almost can't give a list like this without hitting on social media. I'm, like, not negative on social media. I mean, I'm negative on some things on social media, but, like, I almost feel like, oh, man, do I really want to deal with that because it almost feels passe at this point. But it showed up on a lot of people's lists, so I thought, well, it's there. This doesn't fit everybody here, okay? But if the shoe fits, then wear it for a minute because this is enslaving, You've heard it said that if it's not on Instagram, it didn't happen. Why? Because the unstated and unconscious goal of only some Instagram slash social media users is to try to impress people. It's to try to get people to celebrate you. How? By presenting only the most presentable and celebratory worthy moments of your life. Man, what does Jesus say? And the gospel comes to me and it comes to you and says, listen, the blood of Christ is so powerful on your behalf that it takes the one whose opinion alone really in the end matters, and certainly the one whose opinion matters more than anyone else's opinion. And it so favorably disposes him toward you that he, the God of heaven, celebrates you. He rejoices over you with singing. Like I've never put a picture on Instagram and had somebody call me up singing. Never. It's not going to happen. I mean, maybe it'll happen today because I just said that and you'll prove me wrong, but you know what I mean? Like, you're so awesome. No, I mean, you know, come on. It's like a picture of my wife petting a dog or something. It's like I got nothing. And he celebrates you notwithstanding the fact that because he is God and he is everywhere present all the time, he was personally present, not just in your moments that were most worthy of celebration but in the ones you'd least like to post. That's love. That's power. That's freedom. That's joy. All right, last one. You've heard it said that if you're really busy or if you're really successful or if you're really good at keeping everybody happy with you most, at least most of the time, then you must also be really important and significant. Guys, that's exhausting. That makes me tired. 
Like I hear that and I think, okay, I just want to lay down and defeat. Like I just, I can't keep up if I'm, if I'm really busy. Well, you know, I mean, I look at other people and they're a lot more busy than I am. Some of them, you know, they got a lot more capacity and I'm thinking, oh, that guy's the really important one. Is he? What about success? Like that's a, that's a fool's errand. Like we chase that, we chase that. It's like chasing the wind, you know, because <laughs> everybody, I mean, has somebody that is wealthier than they are. They're more successful if that's the way we're going to define it than they are. In fact, way more, you know, and like that leaves you like stepping on your yacht one day going, I'm a pauper, you know, like I got nothing. Keeping everybody happy. That's a tough one. It really is. It's hard to try to derive your value from trying to please everybody and keep all the plates spinning and make everybody happy. And therefore then, you know, like for a moment you feel like, yes, you know, I'm there. I matter. God's like, can I just remove all of that from you? It's wonderful that you're a servant. Everything you have I've given. Hey, here's the deal. God thinks so highly of you that he gave his infinitely valuable son to die so that he might have you. I don't know. I think that's kind of a remarkable thought. What Jesus is after with all of this, in my opinion, is our heart. And again, when you bring him your heart, he forgives you of all the stuff you've done out here. That's awesome. And then he forgives you of the even more stuff you've done in here also awesome. He replaces your loves with His and your passions with His and your desires with His. He disabuses you of things that, that you thought were true and you lived your life in accordance with and discovered that it was slavery. And what that does is it frees you. The heart matters. Listen to what Solomon says in Proverbs 4. Beginning in verse 20, he says, my son, be attentive to my words. Okay, well, what words are those? The words of the Bible in this case. Words of wisdom, words of freedom, words of joy, words of love, words of life. He says, my son, be attentive to my words. Now, notice this. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them where? In the midst of your heart. It's fascinating, isn't it? What has he just said? He's like, if you want to know what the avenues to your heart are, They're your ears and your eyes. We could park there. I'm going to move on, okay? My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. And then he says this. He says, keep your heart with all vigilance. Like if you're going to be vigilant about something, keep your heart. For from it flow the springs of life. The point being that that sin that you excuse, that the habit you indulge, that the practice that you worship and love more than Jesus, I mean, when it comes down to it, okay, poisons your heart, and your heart is the well of your life. So it poisons your heart, therefore, then it poisons your life. And that selfishness that says to your spouse or to any other living person, hey, you know what? You're here for me. I'm not here for you. I don't have to do anything. You're not taking good care of me, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I mean, you know the drill. Poisons your heart, which poisons your life. Untruthfulness, hate, adulterous thoughts. Treasured up in here is a poison in here. It poisons your heart. It poisons your life. All of these things that are not true in an alignment with the Word of God, which is true, 
are poisonous and enslaving and entrapping. They, they poison our hearts, and, and therefore then they poison our lives. But in my opinion, at least, very few things will poison your heart more fully and more quickly than an unwillingness to seek forgiveness or an unwillingness to extend forgiveness. Where did Jesus begin with us? Listen again. He says in Matthew 5, verse 23, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, well, who is that? Because that just sounds weird. Like, I've never done that. I'm going to bring my gift to the altar. Okay, these people on the mount with Jesus 2,000 years ago knew exactly that situation and who that guy was. That was the guy who had in all likelihood walked two days, three days, five days, eight days to get to the city of Jerusalem for one of her feasts who had brought with him this perfect, spotless, innocent lamb so that the priest could offer it in his behalf, the innocent blood shed to cover over the guilt of this person. It's a picture of Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How? How? By offering his innocent life that's infinitely valuable so it's sufficient for all of us in the place of the guilty. So that guy travels two, six, eight days. He shows up in Jerusalem He's got his gift. Tens of thousands of other people are there as well. It's the big feast, and now he stands in line for forever, and we all love to stand in line. It's, it's our favorite thing to do. Finally, he makes it all the way up to the altar to give it to the priest that the innocent might be shed for the guilty and so forth, and it's the point of his coming for the most part. Jesus says, okay, you got his, got his picture in mind? That guy. If you're that guy and you get to the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you. Do what? Offer your gift? I mean, you sure have a lot invested in it. He says, leave your gift there before the altar and go to wherever your brother is. And first, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And you say, well, that's inconvenient. Oh, man, is it ever... (laughs) Yes, it is, and difficult to do, but it also very well may be the antidote to the poison in your heart that's poisoning your life. It's hard to go seeking forgiveness. It takes a great level of humility, and it's hard to extend forgiveness to somebody who doesn't deserve it, or even to people who might. It's a difficult and painful thing, and yet what enables you to do that is the realization that that is exactly what Christ has done for you. My goodness, He's one-upped us, you know? Like even though He was the offended party, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world came to me and to you. He sought us out, and then He gave His life to pay the debt that we owe to Him so that he might save me and he might save you and rescue us from all the poison within. So then how, once he has hold of our hearts, once he begins to do his work, how can we refuse to mimic the behavior of the one that we love? It's good behavior, and it brings him glory and shows him off by going and seeking forgiveness from people that we need to seek forgiveness from or from extending it to people that we need to extend it to. So I want you guys to stand as we enter into our reflection time, if you would, and we're going to begin with, with song today. But I want you to know that when Jesus invites you up onto the mountain, okay, where he's going to challenge your kingdom week by week as we move our way through it, the most important thing that you can bring with you, in fact, don't even come unless you bring this, 
is your heart, the wellspring of your life. And I want to ask you, how's your heart? And where is it? Like, is it in your hands? Or is it in his? Like, if you keep it, it's going to look like the artwork that we saw. If you give it to him, what does he say? Give me your heart of stone, and I will return to you a heart of flesh. What does that mean? I will take that which is dead, and I will make it alive. I'll reach in, and I'll grab the cup of poison or the keg, you know, whatever it is, and I'll rid you of it. I'll heal the wounds and the scars. So the question is, will you bring it to Jesus and let him forgive you for the things out here and in here and let him make you new? Think about that as we sing.